Well guys, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whenever you may be watching this. Glad that you guys are tuning in to the online uh, Weekend Experience. My name is Aiden, one of the pastors here at Grace. If you are someone who has called Grace Church home for a long time, uh, glad you're watching online. If we haven't seen you in a while in person, miss seeing you. I'd love for you to shoot me an email. Uh, and if you are newer to tuning on online, we are glad that you're doing this. You guys can open your Bibles to the book of John chapter six. We're gonna kind of be in that book today. We'll be jumping around in chapter six. Uh, but we, as you can see, are in an extremely important conversation called the gospel. And now I don't know what you think of when you hear that word gospel. Maybe you think of a genre of music. Maybe you think of your childhood sitting in a church pew being bored. Maybe you have been a Christian for a while and you're like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I don't know how that hits you, but one thing I think is so important as we jump into this right from the start here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unique because it's not advice, it's not information, it's not a philosophy, it's not just mere knowledge, right? We are in the information age. We, we want 10 steps to health, to parenting, productivity, 10 steps to, to happiness. Why? Because knowledge equals power, right? And so when we hear the gospel sometimes, we often think, okay, so this is another healthy way to live. Oh, this is another way that I could be successful in my life. Okay, this is the way, you know, and so we think about it that way, right? But the gospel is so important to start here. It's not information, it's not advice, but it is news. The gospel is news and news is directly tied to the hearer or the plight of the one receiving the news. I've told this story before, but guys, I'm only 30. I only have so many stories, so we're gonna bring it back around. I think I told this story in my first sermon years ago. It's probably over a decade now. Uh, a good friend and I, we were in college, we were bored, we didn't have relationships, which will become abundantly clear. But we one night, it was like a Saturday night, we got in our cars and we just started driving south. And we're like, let's drive to Virginia Beach. We just started doing that. If you've been in college, you've probably just done aimless things like this. This was before, I like we didn't have iPhones, we didn't have Google Maps on our phones, we didn't have all this stuff. We just had a couple flip phones and we started driving to Virginia Beach. And we're about four hours south and we go to this, this truck stop and we don't, we don't have a map. We didn't print MapQuest. We don't have Google Maps. And so we, we need to know how to get there. And so there's this map on the wall that explains where all the interstates go. And this uh, nice trucker man came out of the bathroom. It looked like we were waiting for him. He kind of, what are you doing? And we asked this guy, we're like, if we take these two roads, will this get us to Virginia Beach? He was not interested in our, in our plight. And he was just like, sure. So he gave us some information. That wasn't the most helpful information, but he gave us information. This is how you can go this way. This is, if you wanna go here, here's the information on how to get there. So we jumped in the car, we took his advice, we drove for like eight hours. And there's a point when you do something like this where it's about 3 a.m. and you're like, this was a horrible, this was a horrible decision because we have to drive back at some point to wherever we're going. So we are driving and driving and driving and the sun is starting to come up. We left our house at like 10 at night. And so the sun is coming up, it's probably like seven in the morning. We're like, man, we have not seen any signs for Virginia Beach. We have not seen a single sign. And so we get out at a rest stop, you know, a little, little rest stop kind of thing. And we get out and we look at that big sign that, that shows you a map of the state. And so we're on this side of the state of Virginia. If you're familiar with the state of Virginia, we're on this side looking for where Virginia Beach is at and we, where we are at. And we start seeing all the, all the cities we've been going through. And we realize that we are about a minute and a half from Tennessee, which is the opposite side of the state from Virginia. And we recognize this because when we looked at the sign, there was a little thing that said, you are here. And that little you are here was not just information, but that was news to us because that is not where we wanted to be. We wanted to be here. 
And as that guy gave us information, this little information on that map gave us news because it was directly tied to the here, right? This was, this was bad news, but this was news to us. In his essay, The Message in a Bottle, Walker Percy, he's a theologian, he describes this difference between information and news. He writes, if a group of logicians are at a meeting and someone runs in and yells fire, they would immediately run out of the building before carefully studying the sentence because for a moment, the accumulation of knowledge is no longer the most important thing. News is. You know that this is true if you waited for test scores, a diagnosis, the gender of your child, the response to a love letter. We don't want information, we want news. Because that news is dependent on the hearer. A guy named David Zoll says, knowledge relates to and empowers the self, which helps solve everyday problems. That's good, right? But when the problem is the self, help must come from the outside. This is not to say that the knowledge and understanding of all these things are important as we navigate the gospel. It's completely important. But what is so important is that the essence of the gospel, the essence of what we're talking about is good news. It's a declaration. And this is what the gospel declares. This is what the gospel says. It says that God loves me. It starts there that God in love created the world. Out of this perfect loving community of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he created things out of love, right? Created humanity, mankind out of love to have relationship with him. We'll unpack this today. But the gospel also says this. It says that I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Scripture says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes we can think, well, I stole a cookie from the cookie jar, so that makes me a sinner. No, what the gospel says, we read this in Romans 5, is that the reason that we want to go take from that cookie jar, that we have this desire, we have this lust to go steal these cookies that aren't ours. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's this all-encompassing thing that is wreaked upon uh, human nature, right? But the gospel also says this, that Jesus died for me while I was still in my sin. That while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That he moved towards us before we had any capacity to move towards him. The gospel says this, that Jesus was buried, is alive, and is coming back. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he is coming back. Sometimes we get antsy because we're not sure if he's coming back. So we start to get weird, right? The gospel tells us that Jesus is coming again. The gospel says this, that when I say yes to Jesus, I am saved from my sin and into his family forever. We looked at this last week, that there's a confidence that there's this acceptance and this new identity that happens in the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 11 sums this up. It says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel, my friends, it is good news. And we have to start there today because the gospel isn't just an entry prayer into this whole Christianity thing, but everything we do stems from it, flows from it, and is reframed through this good news. But as we're talking about this gospel, the question we want to unpack today is you hear all that, you're like, oh, it's good news, it's not just information, this is amazing. But the question we want to ask today, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are not a follower of Jesus and you just look at Christians, you might ask this question, if this gospel is such good news, 
why are Christians oftentimes so unsatisfied by it? Why does it look like Christians are unhappy, that they're doing the same things that the world's doing, and that they are unsatisfied by the good news of the gospel? You know, as Christians, you may say, we don't, we don't sing as loud as we first did when we, got, when we came to know Christ. You know, you sing a song like Amazing Grace, and it's like, it was amazing when I first came to know Jesus, but now it's like, nice grace. Nice grace, how nice. You know, like, that's what happens to us. We were once on fire, but now we're just kind of smoldering in that that gospel has gone from good news that has an immediate, immediate effect upon the hearer to nice information, just another healthy way to live. And what I want to present to you today, what I want to unpack for this next couple minutes is that I think the primary reason that we are unsatisfied by the gospel is not that it loses its power or becomes any less of an all-encompassing, beautiful story, but that our hearts are so easily captivated by other things. Our hearts are captivated so easily by other things. We see this all through the story of Scripture. As we read through the Bible, it is just wandering hearts that continue to turn their backs on God and turn to other things and find other ways to satisfy their souls. And we see this in ourselves, that we so quickly can turn to other things to bring us satisfaction that only Jesus can bring. But why is this the case? Why are our hearts so easily prone to wander, as an old hymn says? Like many things, it starts in the garden. I want to jump. I think this is so important to unpack this to see where we're going today to see why it is that we, we have this need for satisfaction and why do we turn to so many other things. It starts in the garden in Genesis. God creates all things. He creates all things and he creates mankind, you and me, human beings in his image, in this unique way, unlike any other part of creation, that we are his image bearers, that we represent specific characteristics and qualities of God, our maker. We are made in his image. We all know this to be true about other humans. Despite how crazy they are, despite how much we may disagree with other people, despite people's capacities, we know that there is a difference between a very expensive, helpful animal and a human. Like we just inherently know that, that there's something different stamped on the heart of a human, right? We know this, we know this because we have a soul, we have this inherent spiritual aspect of our whole being, the essence and the substance of our living nature, right? Squirrels don't have this. Trees don't have this. You have a beautiful, wonderful dog who is your best friend, but your dog does not bear the image of God like your enemy does. And you know in your heart that it's true, right? That we, we, have, we have this deep sense of meaning. Your dog is not struggling with his identity. He's not struggling about his eternal consequence. He's not, he's not wondering if his life has meaning, right? He just wants kibbles and bits. That Blaise Pascal said this, this God-shaped hole in our hearts. If you grew up in 90s youth group culture, you've probably heard that before, right? But this is our soul, and our souls were created to be satisfied by the presence of our Creator. When we read Genesis, we oftentimes just stop it. This was just how things ended up being. This is just an account of how things are now existing. And we can stop there. But the story of Genesis in the garden gives us such a picture of how God relates to, to people, right? That he dwells with us, that his presence is what gives us satisfaction, that he calls us to, to make the world flourish and to help rule the earth as he does, right? There's this beautiful picture, almost this temple picture of man and God dwelling together. And we've been walking through this, this, this gospel prayer in this series. And the gospel prayer says this, 
We'll throw it up here on the screen. It says, in Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I've done that makes you love me less. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. In the garden, as we dwelt with God's presence, his presence and approval were all we needed for joy, right? But we know what happened, Genesis 3, is that we sought control and power and satisfaction for ourselves in our own way. That God gave us the dignity of choice, right? We wanted to be like God and create a means of satisfying our souls on our own. Love Dallas Willard says, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he didn't hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being, to secure her own satisfaction. And so this has separated us from God. And while God, all through the story of scripture, continues to move towards us in a matter of different ways, time and time again, we turn to other things to satisfy and to fill our souls, to fill our emptiness and our longing and to find approval that we initially had in the garden with God. What we have, you guys can write this down, is we have spiritual hunger. What we have is spiritual hunger. In John 6, Jesus talks about this. Jesus just fed 5,000 people with some bread. He gets on a boat with his disciples. Peter walks on the water. He's on the other side of the shore. These people come and find him. And Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus says, Don't work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Since the fall, our hunger and our satisfaction and our need for inner approval in the pursuit of that has been the human's song, right? We see this all over the place, whether it be sex, whether it be money, whether it be other people, power, accomplishment, we are hungry to satisfy the longing of our souls. Bono says it best as he normally does in his song. He says, I've kissed honey lips, felt, the, felt her healing in her fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I've spoke with tongues of angels, I've held the hand of the devil, it was warm in the night, but I was cold as a stone. And Bono continues to echo, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? Like we can all relate to that. We have this spiritual hunger. We attempt to satisfy ourselves with what Jesus calls bread that spoils, right? With cheap substitutes for the presence of God in our lives and our hearts. And we've, we've talked about this before, but it's so important to, to keep turning back to this as we talk about this gospel conversation. What scripture calls these cheap substitutes, what, what scripture calls these things in our hearts that we turn to to try to satisfy what only God can satisfy are idols. That we want to satisfy our hunger with things God has made instead of God himself. Look at what Romans 1.25 says. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's exactly what idolatry is, right? But when we talk about idols, I know we've talked about this before if you've been around for a while, but it's so important that we talk about this and how it takes root in our lives. Because sometimes that word idolatry is not a word we use. Like it sounds like an Indiana Jones movie with like a little monkey head or something like that, right? If we're being honest. But as we unpack this, it's so important. Uh, I think Tim Keller says it this way, and it's, it, I think this is a good definition, that idols are simply good things that become ultimate things in our, in our hearts, in our lives. We'll, we'll throw this up here. But Tim Keller says this, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. 
Sometimes it is. He says, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as what he calls a counterfeit God or an idol, especially the very best things in life. That's worth taking a picture of, writing down. And please hear me as we, as we talk about this. Your spouse, your kids, your job, your dreams, your politics, your passions, they are not inherently bad things. Every time we talk about this, someone's like, am I supposed to not love my kids? Is that what you're saying? It's not what I'm saying. And we'll unpack this. But they weren't meant to hold the weight of your satisfaction and of your approval and to satisfy your souls. They weren't meant to hold that weight, right? They weren't made to satisfy your soul. I, uh, a couple years ago, well, actually, I got it right out of high school. I had this scooter, and I recently got going on my scooter again, and so that has kind of become my mode of transportation, not during January, but you can drive it a lot later in the year than you think you can. My friend was in town, same friend that uh, we got lost in Virginia Beach with. He, uh, he uh, was in town, and we both got on this scooter, and we were two grown men trying to ride around on the scooter, and I'll tell you this, those wheels went from nice and inflated to almost flat. It was not meant to hold two grown men, and I know I'm not the biggest of men, but it was not meant to hold two of us. I actually got a picture of the two of us here on the scooter. Uh, this, is, this is us on the scooter. But this scooter was not meant to hold our weight. It's a good scooter, it's got a purpose, but it wasn't meant to hold the weight of what we expected it to hold. And that's what idolatry is. It can't hold the weight of the satisfaction of our souls. Our kids can't, our spouse can't, our dreams can't, other people can't, it can't bear that weight. And so often we expect our passions to carry that and to bear that weight for us so only God can satisfy. I recently was at a family member's house and kind of passively in the background was the new Disney movie called Soul. And I was interested in this movie because I'm like, well, this will be great. This is Disney's take on the afterlife. We're probably going to be shooting a uh, a great batting average with this one, right? So I kind of was passively watching this movie. There's a lot of blue things popping around. But afterwards, I, I read a review by a guy named Dustin Crow who was talking about the gospel in this movie. He called Soul the anti-Disney Disney movie. And it was interesting, if, if this is all in the preview, so I'm not ruining the movie, but the story is the story of this guy named Joe. He is a, he is a music teacher at a school, and he has this dream of playing with this jazz band. Doretha and her jazz band. He wants to play with this jazz band so bad. And what happens is Joe finally gets this gig, this gig with Doretha and her jazz band. And he's so pumped and he leaves the venue. And as he's celebrating and skipping around the streets of Pixar World, he falls into a manhole, which is kind of abrupt and kind of blunt. But he falls into this manhole and the rest of the movie is him exploring the great beyond, right? So now he's dealing with what is on the other side, right? Now, we probably have some disagreements with Disney and their theology on the afterlife, but there's some interesting things in this movie that it talks about. As he is in this great beyond, he's navigating one of these realms, and he, he is exploring this place where lost souls wander. And this is people who have turned their passions into idols. And his guide in the realm says this to him, this zone is enjoyable, but when that joy becomes an obsession, one does become disconnected from life. This guy, Joe, in the movie, he learns this firsthand when he shrinks his life's significance down into his passion to be a successful jazz musician. And this is what Joe says. Once he finally gets to experience this, this, this excitement with playing in the band, this one thing he wanted, this is what Joe says, and this is Disney Channel. <laughs> he says, I've been waiting on this day my entire life thought it would feel different. 
ladies and gentlemen, even Disney is catching on to the fact that our hunger for worldly happiness and individualistic pursuits are fleeting. And you know it if you've got to the end of all these passions and you're like, yeah, this is different than I thought it was gonna be. This is, I finally retired and still not fulfilling. I finally met that person, but they're actually still a human being. Oh, I finally had a kid, it was the only thing I ever wanted and uh, they're a nightmare a lot of the times, right? Finally got this job I always wanted, but it still doesn't satisfy my soul. But how do we know when these passions, like Joe in that movie, have become our idols? I, I would encourage you to write down and just ask yourself some of these questions. Before we jump into these, all these different things are good, but they're not meant to satisfy our souls. So how do we know when these passions have become our idols? Is it what I ultimately need to feel significant, to feel worthy, to feel like I have a place in this world? What is it that when I lose, it triggers depression in me, it triggers failure in me, it triggers feelings of uselessness in me when I lose this thing? What is that thing? What do I turn to to find comfort, to kind of ease my soul? What do I turn to? Who is the person that I cannot forgive? that I cannot forgive because whatever they stole from me may also point to an idol. If there's someone in my heart that I cannot forgive, I may be harboring an idol in my heart. Where do I compromise what God has clearly called me to? Is it in a relationship, position at work, ways just to be comfortable financially? Where have I compromised? Or where am I willing to compromise? Maybe an idol. This is interesting for 2020, 2021, but what causes me to just get so emotionally worked up, to become emotionally unhinged in whatever way you become emotionally unhinged? For some of us, it's a lot chiller than others. But whatever that is, it may reveal an idol in my heart where my passion has become an idol. Look at your phone's screen time report. That'll direct you straight to where your passions have become idols. Because what happens is these idols, why sometimes this conversation can sound ethereal, like, oh, idolatry, that's some crazy thing. These things in our day-to-day, nitty-gritty grind of life, they become functional saviors. Like, we know that Jesus died for us on the cross, that we can go to heaven when we die, and I know I trust him with my eternal salvation. But for my day-to-day satisfaction, I don't trust Jesus with it. I trust my functional saviors. And these functional saviors, they have their own salvation stories, their own ways that they are going to bring us satisfaction in life. We talked about this a while ago, but these functional saviors have salvation stories. For the believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, the the scriptures tell us the story of Jesus. There there are sacred texts, right? The, The scriptures are sacred texts and they tell the elect, that is, followers of Jesus, the people who are in on this story of Jesus, they tell us about our Savior, Jesus. These these sacred texts point, they tell the, the elect, the people of Jesus about their Savior, and it points to this day when Jesus will make all things new, this reckoning day, right? And all of these functional saviors have their own salvation stories. For many of us, they have sacred texts. Maybe it's that parenting book, that self-help book, For some of us, maybe it's the Constitution. That's our sacred text. Maybe they're the words and the teaching of some guru, some podcaster, somebody with a Twitter feed. Sometimes it's maybe a Christian book. That that becomes our sacred text. It's whatever this person says is going to guide me on my path to satisfaction and salvation. So we all have our sacred text. These saviors in our lives, 
There's somewhere that we are drawing this from, right? And we all have our saviors. Maybe it's our well-behaved kid. Maybe it's that, that, that dream relationship, that boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. For some of us, it's that right politician. For some of us, it's that perfect boss. Best friend, right pastor, it's an insightful author, but this person is gonna lead us down the path to satisfying our hunger. And the people that are with us on that journey, the people that are in that circle are, are the elect, or the other people that go with us, the people on that path. It's the moms in the mom blog. It's the people in our political parties. It's my generation. It's my social circle. It's the people in my Facebook group. It's the group who really gets it, who's really going with me where I wanna go. They get it. And we are reading our sacred text, following our savior, going together. And there is this reckoning day in all these salvation stories. It's that day when my kid finally brings home the report card and it justifies me being a parent. It's when I get that job at work. It's when my person gets elected. It's when I, that my wedding day when I finally get married. It's, it's my graduation day when I finally made it through college, when I finally made it through my master's. It's that day when I finally retire. When I retire, that's the reckoning day when everything is gonna be as it should. And we create these salvation stories with sacred texts and with saviors and with, with the elect and with the reckoning day. And we all hope that they're gonna satisfy our souls. And what happens oftentimes, what happens oftentimes as we follow these salvation stories is that we use God, we invoke the name of God to get what we really want. And what happens is that we summon God's name to be a side dish to feed our spiritual hunger. God, God would want me to be happy. He would want me to be happy. I, I have ignored what he has called me to do. I have, I have ignored what he clearly says in scripture, not even something that's kind of debatable, but because God would want me to be happy. For sometimes we walk through something, we're like, God, God wouldn't do this to me. God would not want me to be uncomfortable like this. He would not want me to be at this job. He would not want me to be unhappy. You know, this, this is how God wants this country to be. He wants it to be blue or he wants it to be red. And it's just crazy how it always lines up with some specific thing that's created in this world. For some of us, it's like, you know, I think God just would want us to love, which we redefine what love is, everyone. And so we just agree with everyone and there's just no problems. And that's what God wants. We invoke God to give what the desires and satisfaction of our heart truly is. And we make God a means to our satisfaction instead of the end of our satisfaction. And this is exactly what James is talking about in James 4. James isn't talking to non-believers, people who don't follow God. He's talking to believers. And he kind of gives us a harsh word. He says that James 4, 3, he says, When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. He's not pulling any punches. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He doesn't pull any punches. He's like, you are using God to get the worldly pleasures that you want. You are using God to satisfy your soul with these cheap substitutes. My friends, I tell you this, God loves you too much too much to give you these cheap, satisfying things of, of, of your heart. He loves you too much to let you settle for these cheap substitutes. 
St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless. They're always searching, always wandering, always wanting to fill and satisfy with something else. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In the book of Isaiah, a prophet, this is long before the time of Jesus, prophesies and says this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. He's not talking about physical bread and milk but he's talking about what Jesus was talking about in John 6 when he was talking to that crowd. Because this is what Jesus goes on to say in John 6. He's talking to these people who watched him feed 5,000, over 5,000 with bread. They followed him to this other shore and they're tracking with him. And Jesus tells them, don't eat bread that spoils, but bread that endures to eternal life. And they go on and they talk to him about the manna that God gave their ancestors in the wilderness in the book of Exodus when he provides their needs by giving them this daily bread. And they talk about this. And look at what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is saying, I am the one who satisfies the hunger and the thirst of your souls. That what we search for, our spiritual hunger, that we look to find satisfaction in, in so many different things, Jesus says, I am the one who will satisfy that in you. How does he do that? By dying in our place and making a way that we may live whole again with our souls made whole in the presence of God. Just as what we had in the garden and lost, Jesus, that's the story of the gospel, he makes that way possible again to live in the presence of God by giving himself. Look at what Tim Keller says. He says, Jesus doesn't give the bread of life. He is the bread of life. Outside of salt and some minerals, everything you eat has died so that you might live. And Jesus has died. He has given his life so that we might find life abundantly in the presence of God. That we might have life and life to the fullest in the presence of God. And that life looks different than the life that the world tells us we need to be satisfied in. We find true satisfaction by abiding in Christ, the one who gave his very life for you and for me. Jesus doesn't come and satisfy our earthly desires. It's not like, oh man, I have this, I just love getting new stuff. I love the materialism. And Jesus is like, oh, I'll hook you up. Now that's what some theologians want to tell you. And it's crap. To believe that I can satisfy my soul and God just wants me to give me the things of this world to satisfy my soul. You know that doesn't work. And I know that doesn't work. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I will satisfy you by giving you that status that you want or by giving you that easy life that you so desire or by giving you that nice, easy dream retirement. Jesus doesn't satisfy the sinful desires of our souls. 
he redefines what it really means to be satisfied. It's like, I'm not going to give you temporary happiness, but I will give you a deep joy in the gospel. No, I'm not going to give you this materialism, but I'm going to give you this deep acceptance of the Father. No, I'm not, I'm not going to give you some nice status that you want, but I'm going to give you an identity that is unshakable and rooted in an unchangeable God. He doesn't simply satisfy, oh, Jesus will satisfy the things we want. No, he redefines how we are satisfied by giving us his presence. And if we're honest, we know these things about the gospel. We know, we're like, I know that money and the girlfriend and my retirement, I know these things aren't going to bring me actual satisfaction, but they're nice. Right, Aiden? They're nice. And we know that in our hearts. We know that in our minds. We know they're not. We believe it on paper, but we have a hard time trusting that the satisfaction that the gospel brings is what we truly need. We have a hard time trusting that, right? I know I do. And I'd have to guess that you do too. That's why we turn to these lesser things to satisfy. Things we can see, we can touch, we can pursue, that we can get a dopamine kick from. It's why it's so easy to turn to those things. Because we get a quick response from them. But as we talk about this, we're like, Jesus satisfied. He's the bread of life. Okay, but Aiden, how does that work? How do I become satisfied? I'm not satisfied. And I want to be satisfied in the gospel. I want to eat that bread, as they said to Jesus. Sir, give us this bread. How does this work? Jesus says in the, in the Psalms, we see that God says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus gives us this invitation to come and respond. Just like in the garden, he gives us the dignity of choice. He's not going to shove bread down your throat. He says, come and eat. That's the invitation that Jesus has. The way that we experience this gospel satisfaction is that we have to come and eat. That's what Isaiah was prophesying. saying, come, come eat. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, don't eat this bread. Come and eat this bread that, that is eternal, that satisfies. Come and eat, right? We have, to, we have to come and respond to it with Jesus' open hand, to Jesus' invitation. In that same chapter in James 4, where James is kind of giving it to us, like he's, he's being bluntly honest with us. In verse 4, 7 through the beginning of 8, he says two things. Two simple ways that I think that we come and eat. He says, submit yourselves then to God. He says, resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, this doesn't mean that God is over here standing like, all right, just once you want me, I'm just going to stand in the corner like he's not giving us the silent treatment. That God pursues us. He moves towards us. But what James is saying, it's like, draw near to God and God is drawn near to you. He'll draw near to you. Draw near to God. I think the two ways that we, that we eat, that we come and eat to be satisfied, the first thing is that we submit is what James is saying. And we don't like that language because we like to have our own freedom, do what we want to do, go our own way. We don't like that word submit. But I think it's powerful because what that means is that we yield our desires, our preferences, our appetite for these worldly things, and we trust even when it doesn't make sense. Even when we don't see the quick response. All, you, you know this if you've, ever, if you've ever tried a diet. Like, if we're searching for satisfaction, there's a long road to eating healthy and being healthy. And there's a quick satisfaction to eating Snicker bars. Trust me, I'm a canny connoisseur. 
that true satisfaction, this, this come and eat, this laying down of our desires that Jesus allows us to do, that the Spirit dwelling within us helps us to do. And we trust even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't feel it, we submit to God. I just talked to a couple individuals this week that have made some life decisions that were hard. There were some easy doors that weren't even necessarily wrong. Some life-giving doors that they could have went through, but they were like, but God is not in this. God is not in this thing, and I'm going to choose to submit to God in this way, even though I don't see immediate fruit, though I don't get immediate joy and satisfaction right away like I would if I got this thing. They're submitting to God, trusting and yielding their desires to God. First, the way that we come and eat is we submit to him, trusting that he is God and laying our desires at his feet. And the second thing is simply this, that we draw near to God, that we draw near. We prioritize being with Jesus in prayer, in meditating on the scripture, in sitting in silence and solitude before the Lord in confession and reminding ourselves of our daily need for him, we draw near to him in these ways and sit at the feet of Jesus and be with him. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, we now can sit in the presence of God. We can enter the throne room boldly. Apart from Christ, we cannot do that. That we prioritize being with Jesus and we prioritize doing what Jesus does. We draw near to him, we draw near to his community. We come and worship together and we show hospitality to one another. When we give ourselves away for the sake of others, just as Jesus did in the gospel for us. That we're with Jesus and we do what he did is when we draw near. I draw near to my wife and we spend time together and we watch a movie together and we go on a walk together. When we go and be with other people together, when we serve together, we draw near to one another. It's that simple. It's that simple. That's why I talk about these spiritual practices. He's practicing the presence of Jesus by doing what Jesus did and being with him. It's how we draw near. I know this, that you may, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you try this Jesus thing. And we tell ourselves, yeah, and this is great, but it, the, the, the gospel doesn't work. It doesn't work. And if that is you, if you're like, yeah, I, I, I find better satisfaction in, in my retirement account. I find my satisfaction in my vacations. I find satisfaction hanging out with these people. I find satisfaction. All, that is how my soul is satisfied. I'm doing just fine. And the gospel doesn't work. I would challenge you that you may have been looking at the gospel as good information and not good news. They're like, this doesn't work. And this, this, this diet works. These 10 steps to a healthy life work. The gospel doesn't work. Jesus doesn't work. You may have believed in your head, but the actual day-to-day abiding, trusting in, and following Jesus, the drawing near and submitting to him, isn't there. And so you've settled for drawing near and submitting to cheap substitutes. You submit yourself to your kids and to your job and to the, the worldly passions that we have. Some of those things are not bad things, but they're what we submit to and what we draw near to expecting to do what Jesus can only do. And you may have never taken Jesus up on that invitation to come, eat this bread, drink from this cup that will satisfy. At the end of, of that book, of that chapter of John 6, all, the, all these, it's a long chapter, all these things happen. And, and as Jesus is talking about this bread, he starts saying some crazy things. 
He starts saying, you're going to feast on my flesh and you're going to drink my blood. And people are like, this dude's weird. And Jesus had more than just his 12 disciples. He had a lot of people that followed him for different reasons. They watched miracles he did. He gave them bread. So they followed him around. And soon as Jesus started saying some challenging things, some spiritual realities, he starts talking about the spirit and the flesh, and he starts talking about all these things. People are like, nah, this dude's weird. I'm going to go back to what I was doing. And they start turning back their spiritual hunger to these different things that satisfy. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus looks at the 12, his inner circle, the 12 disciples. He looks at him and he says, you guys going to leave too? You got, you guys going to go? And I love what Peter says. Jesus says, do you want to leave too? He asked the 12 and Simon Peter answered. It's almost like you can see Peter like looking around like, Jesus, where else are we going to go? Where, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We have come to believe and know. We have tasted and seen, Jesus, that you are good. The disciples are failing and dropping the ball all over the time, but they draw near to Jesus. They've submitted themselves to Jesus. They're like, we want to eat this bread that you have, Jesus. Where else are we going to go? Friends, the heart of the gospel is, is not information. It's not 10 steps to see if this works. See if this brings you happiness. That's not what it is. Jesus actually gives us a lot of indication that this is going to be tough. That in this world, you will have trouble. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. My friends, I want to challenge you. When you're done watching this, we're going to close out. Spend five minutes if you're by yourself, if you're with somebody else, just in silence, maybe have a piece of paper in front of you and be like, Jesus, what are the idols in my life? What am I turning to? What am I pursuing? What am I being satisfied by? Because I think Jesus wants to tenderly and lovingly tear these idols from our hearts because he loves us. And he wants our hearts to be where Peter is. And we know that Peter screwed up time and time again. But that our hearts would say, Jesus, to where else would we go? Jesus, we're thankful that you're gracious with us. We're thankful that you're patient with us. And we are thankful that you have offered us life and life abundantly and not in the cheap ways that our world offers us. Jesus, I pray that your spirit, that you would help us to identify the spiritual hunger in our hearts and the things that we are hoping will satisfy that hunger. And that, Jesus, you might pull those things from our hearts that we might be satisfied in you. Because, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. So, Jesus, help us to identify these things. Help us to submit to you, to draw near to you, that we might eat this bread and drink your cup, that we might be satisfied in a way that is far beyond the satisfaction that this world offers, that we might find our identity and our acceptance and our approval and our hope and our security in the well that never runs dry. Jesus, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you don't leave us where we're at. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.